we've successfully penetrated every technical conference that we've gone to. He sent a, a, an email or a message to everyone at the conference, like, hey, come come check out our demo. And the conference organizer was like, wait, how did you do that? <laughs> we didn't give you permission to do that. You didn't pay us to do that. How'd you do that? And it's like, well, uh, it's because your APIs are wide open. I connect as an authenticated user and it, all it's doing is checking the authentication. And then it's saying, hey, because you're an authenticated user, you can call whatever you want on the back end. So we did. What was the conference about? It wasn't like a cybersecurity conference at all, was it? This was a cybersecurity oh, conference. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, Brilliant. gosh. <laughs> Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Now, I'm flying solo this week. You're stuck with me. Chris has somehow managed to overheat his router, so he's having internet troubles and, and therefore we can't record these introductions as we normally would. That being said, let's cut right to the chase. This week, we have Rob Dickinson join us on the show where we delve into the world of geekery and nostalgia as well as API security. So having Rob from Resurface on the show was a delight. We get all nostalgic talking about retro console gaming and hacking Atari and Commodore 64. Do you remember those? We talk about database development with DBase 4, infrastructure, now that's pre-cloud infrastructure for all you newbies, all wrapped up in a neat little jacket of cybersecurity and entrepreneurship. So there's Rob Dickinson. I hope you're having a great week and I hope you're looking forward to the uh, Platinum Jubilee. That's a four-day weekend. And uh, I'll catch up with you after the show. Here is Rob Dickinson. Well, hi, my name is Rob Dickinson. I'm a founder and CTO at Resurface Labs. And great to be with you here this morning. Part of introducing myself, I'm a I'm an old school geek, um, self-taught programmer. Started when I was a kid. Put myself through college, doing programming. You know, worked for some some big companies like like Dell and Intel, and uh, back out on the the startup circuit now with with Resurface, and really having a ball helping folks with their cybersecurity. And we're really specifying, or, or we're really you know, specializing around API security, which really is, is the doorway to just an amazing set of topics <laughs> that we're grappling with, you know, not just technical, but, but also legal, you know, privacy, ethics, you know, a, a lot of things, you know, really come to a, come to a sharp point when, when we're talking about APIs and these digital transformations around those APIs. So it's a really fun time to be in tech, fun time to be in, in cybersecurity. And again, thanks for, thanks for having me on the program. Thank you for joining us. It's, uh, it's really good to have you. I mean, aside from kind of resurface labs, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff to get into there with uh, Dell and Intel. But you said you were, as a kid, you were coding. What age are we talking about here? I got started coding when I was eight. I'm I'm dating myself, dating myself a little bit. But when I was eight, I I really wanted an Atari for Christmas because that was the big, that was the big game platform at the time. You know, I'm really missed out on Atari. Did you do Atari, Sam? <laughs> I was Commodore sixty four. No, I wasn't that early. Right. So that's what I got instead. That's what I got instead. My my dad just had no part of the the Atari thing. He was like, if you want to play games, you should you should write the games first. <laughs> and that was kind of his uh 
his opinion. So I got I got a Commodore 64 and a subscription to PC magazine, which at the time, you know, you, you, you'd get the magazine, it would have a disc in it, and that would be the compiler, and they would have the 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 program listings would be printed out in the magazine, right? And so you would type in the the program listing and that's how you would that's how you would play games, right? On the on the C64. So that's how I got started. That's cool. Like I remember, I mean, I did not program on my Commodore 64. I will I'll, I'll just say it right there. But I remember it was on it was on cassettes, like cause like not CDs or floppy disks. It was like a tape, as you would expect music. And and I didn't that really didn't click how bizarre and crazy that is. And I, me- I remember Granny's Garden. And I also could take the cartridges in the back as well. So I remember having Terminator 2 on it, but um never did the programming thing. So I don't know what language is that. Oh, it was, uh, it was a lot of basic, but I also, you know, I also really got into, um, C64 assembly for whatever reason. So I did, (laughs) you know, I did quite a bit with that. That's really cool. Did you build anything of, of notes with this or is it just following the tutorials on the PC magazine? It's funny. I, I guess I can admit this now because the the statute of limitations is probably passed. But um, <laughs> what I what I got really into was removing copy protection from software. So at the time, you know, there were all these different tricks that you know because I was a kid, I didn't, I didn't have any money, and uh, I was growing up in Florida, and we just we just didn't have access to to, to a lot of tech there. And so um, there were all these games that I wanted to play, and a lot of them were copy protected. And the, the game developers would use all these fancy tricks. They would, they would hide data kind of on the boundary between sectors of the, of the disk. And they, they do all these, all these special things to, to hide the activation codes. And I got really, really good at being able to take, take stuff and decompile it and find, find those things to be able to, to turn the, the copy protection off. And then one day my dad brought home from work a set of discs that had been infected with the Jerusalem B virus, which was one of the first really prolific, uh, you know, computer-based viruses. And what was amazing about that is that the, uh, they actually got that infection from a piece of commercial software. So the, the actual uh, software house that, that produced the, the discs um, and, and you know, master duplicated all the all the discs had actually been infected with Jerusalem B themselves intentionally or by accident. Like no, like- just it it had just spread. You know, it just spread. You know, because it was a virus that would spread from machine to machine through uh, through infected any kind of infected disc. I'm just looking this up. This is in the, the end of October. Well, well October '87. Yeah, it was one of the first like worldwide viruses and so uh actually my dad and i spent quite a bit of time you know pulling that apart and and looking at how it worked and you know it's amazing amazing piece of of technology and uh that was kind of the the first thing that got me interested in in security and and cyber security you know because that's when it kind of shifted from like you know it's it's not just limited to taking software and kind of using it outside what the original developers intended, you know, removing copy protection or um, removing license limits or things like that. But, but that you could actually use software to you know, intentionally inflict damage 
on someone. And, and that just, you know, really opened my eyes to kind of the, 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 the dark side there a bit. <laughs> how did you go about sort of taking that apart and seeing how it was actually created? The, the same way, the same way that we did uh, all, all the software that we did. So I, I had uh, modified my, my Commodore 64. I put a hardware switch in that would throw a, a debug interrupt. So you could you could run it, let it get to a certain point, and then hit the switch on top, and get a get a, a debug interrupt fire, and get a dump of all the registers, and get a dump of what what the machine was doing, and you just kept doing that, and so you could profile kind of what what was what the application was trying to do. So, how old were you when you're doing this? I was in junior high school at that point, high school. So what, what age does that translate to for, for us uh, UK folks? Because <laughs> we have different school ages, don't we? <laughs> yeah, I was 14, 15. So that's pretty advanced stuff for a 14 or 15-year-old, like hardware debugging. I mean, is, this, is some of this led by your father? Yeah, you know, I just, um, like, computers just always kind of made sense to me. I mean, I just always felt like I could, I could play. You know, I'm a, I'm a failed musician as well. I think there's so much crossover between between music and and computers. I mean, they're both cases where, you know, you, you have this thing and you're you're trying to get a some kind of tune out of it, you know, and it's a it's a collaboration between between you and the instrument. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people have that. I mean, Sam and I have that as well, really. <laughs> but I would not have made that. I, you know, I'm mus- musical. I wouldn't say I'm a musician. I'm musical, but I wouldn't I wouldn't make that that. Uh, commonality between those two things it's really interesting how you describe it like that you know it's a very technical way of looking at music whereas i'm just like oh I'll just stick my fingers down and just shove a few chords and see what happens sort of thing. <laughs> you know i think it's really interesting the way that you got into some some of that early on because i mean i um i always had computers around the house my dad always used to build computers and you know so i'm i'm used to taking things apart and building stuff but never really got into the software side of things until i was at university i was always jealous of my cousin who was writing um writing software and uh you know silly little computer games that he'd built or in fact the, the virus that he wrote for his university or for his college even um which was quite entertaining that uh deleted the startup folder and turned every uh, machine off in the college you know <laughs> <laughs> why not <laughs> if you can do it uh dropping a minute a little bit there maybe but um you know i think it's really interesting the approach that you take then so when you went uh away to university then was that with an intention of like i'm gonna carry on with computing or did you go an entirely different route to get into software development no it's funny so at at the time there, there really was no expectation that you could make a living doing software, um, or, or that, you know, it, it certainly wasn't a very mainstream thing. Ironically, the same thing about that you could say about music, right? Like, yes, there are people that make a lot of money doing it, but most, most people don't. They're that are in the field, and so it had, it very much had that that feeling to it. You know, all the all the money was in the hardware. And so the the software in a lot of cases was given away, you know, it just, it just wasn't really the, the, the focus. Right. And so that was kind of, that was kind of the, the, the dominant thinking at the time was like, you know, if you're going to go into computers, that's great, but, but don't do software, do hardware. That's what's, that's where all the money is. And so I actually went to school for electrical engineering with a digital design specialty, which is kind of as close as I could get at the time to, to computer engineering. 
but most of my most of my schooling was actually spent on the on the hardware side. And again, it's just you know sometimes you just fall into these things. Um, I, I needed money, <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to pay my trying to pay my bills, you know, broke college student. And I started doing database development um, professionally on the side as just a way to pay my bills. And by the time I, I got to graduation, it was pretty obvious. It was like, wow, I can make I can make more money doing this than I can using my my actual degree. So the the, the good footnote though there is I, I did ultimately end up at Intel and my my hardware studies and, and my degree actually did come in very, very handy in in that context. But it was but it was kind of amazing just to just to realize, you know, that you've kind of gotten to that point. And I could kind of take take my own path there, so it was it was super fun. Is is that what you were queuing yourself up for, though, doing that that degree um, to to actually go into somewhere like Intel? I, I'd love to say that it was that intentional because it would it would make me sound really smart, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you know I think at the time um, I I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, and how I kind of approached that was. You know, well, I'm I'm not exactly sure what I want to do, so I'll 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 try to do the engineering road. Like I'll try to do like the hardest thing that I could think of to to do and and challenge myself and stretch myself and and I just figured, you know, even if I didn't even if I didn't ultimately want to do engineering, like I would learn, I, I would it, it would lead me to kind of the the next thing. So yeah, like, like I said, I'd love love to say that it was that intentional, but you know, sometimes you just roll the dice and see see how things go well i think i think a lot of the time going away to university is a way that you figure out that you hate your degree and you want to do something entirely different i mean that certainly happened for me and i ultimately came back around to using my degree you know i think that's one of those things so this is what mid 90s now i guess that you're graduating yeah i graduated mid 90s how does one find a database design job whilst they're studying in studying um at university in the mid 90s where where on earth did you come across that so again, I I kind of I kind of fell into it, you know. Luck and chance plays such a huge role in our lives. So again, I, I needed money. I was a broke college student, and I I applied at this phosphate fertilizer manufacturing company in Zephyr Hills, Florida, for a summer internship. And it was so funny because I. I go to this, I go to this interview. And so we're supposed to have, you know, we're supposed to have these, these interviews on, on a Saturday morning. So I, I show up on the Saturday morning and I'm in, I'm in jeans and like a polo shirt and I've got my hard hat and I've got my steel toed boots. Like, cause I'm like figuring like, well, you know, it's a, it's a manufacturing plant. Right. And I walk in the, the front door and everyone there is in a suit and tie. <laughs> and I'm just immediately, I'm just like, I'm so mortified and embarrassed. Like it just, it just honestly didn't occur to me. To, you know, you know, I've never been on a job interview before, you know, I mean, maybe in high school, but like, you know, never something that I, that I really cared about. And so I, you know, very sheepishly, you know, go and, and sit in the back and the, the general manager of the plant comes in and he gives this, you know, little introductory speech, you know, thanks for coming. You know, this is what we'll be doing this summer. And he looks around the room and he's like, okay, so, so stand up if you have safety glasses and steel toed boots and you're, and you're ready to walk into the plant today. And me and this other girl were the only two people that stood up 
And he said, great, you're hired. Everyone else, thanks for coming. Huh. Oh, wow. Hey, guys. Serendipitous. So I, I ended up working in the, um, in the lab doing quality analysis. So we would be sampling, sampling the phosphoric acid vats and the sulfuric acid vats and taking samples off, you know, air samples off for ammonia monitoring and um, other kinds of environmental monitoring. And we had this really, really awful software package. It was for DBase 3. <laughs> so again, dating myself. Um, DBase 3. So you'd, you'd have to you have to put all your environmental data into this program and just sit there and rebuild its indexes for hours and hours and hours on the on the machine. And at one point I went to my my boss and I said, Hey, this software that we're using, this is this is garbage. You know, I mean, I, I can't, you know, I can't believe this is what you do. You know, this is what we're supposed to use all the time. You know, I could do something better than this in a couple of weeks. And she said, great, do it. Hmm. And so I, I basically took that software package and I rewrote it in DBase 4, which is the best thing ever because you know, DBase 4 had maintained indexes and you didn't have to have the machine check out and go to lunch. And so that's what I did. And so that was my first kind of foray into development. And then I kept that project going and ultimately um, hired a salesperson and sold that software to uh, a couple of the other fertilizer uh, complexes in the area. So that was my first, uh, my first kind of playing around with uh, creating something from scratch. But again, it's, you know, it's all accidental. It's all kind of seeing an opportunity and, and going after it. It's funny how these things happen, but I mean, that's not just a foray into uh, software development. That's a foray into entrepreneurship, isn't it? Yeah, it was, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably setting you up pretty well then to head into the dot-com boom then. So where, where do you go from an inspired fertilizer software program <laughs> after that? So I thought for sure, you know, my, my goal was really to go to Silicon Valley because that's, you know, that's, that's where it's at. And they're just, you know, there just weren't, weren't enough opportunities in, in Florida or the, or the Southeast. And I just, I just happened to get a job offer in Colorado Springs in Colorado here. And I, and I pulled and they were willing to, to pay my, uh, my moving expenses. And so I pulled out the map and I was like, well, it's like, it's like, two thirds of the way to the Valley. So I'll just, I'll just <laughs> do that as the first step and I'll, I'll go there for a couple of years and I'll, I'll, I'll learn to ski and I'll learn to snowboard. And then eventually I'll, um, and the, the company that I worked with in, in Colorado Springs, it was a bunch of ex Borland folks. So they were like, yeah, come out here and, and work with us for a while. And then, you know, if you want to, if you want to go to Borland or one of the other companies in the Valley, like we'll, we'll help you, you know, we'll, we'll help you do that. But ultimately um, ended up just, just staying here in Colorado. So what led you through the dot-com boom then? What, what had you picked up when everything is taking off with the internet? You know, I had, I had one of those, you know, classic dot-com experiences where, you know, you, you, you really didn't, you know, nobody really knew how big it was going to be. I mean, everybody, there was this idea, right. Of, of what the, of what the internet was going to be. But the the technology wasn't really there at first. I mean, it, you know, we were so limited by the hardware that was available to us. 
at the time. And, and now like the limitations are really on the, on the software side, but at the time it was really, you know, can you get enough money to, to build a big enough data center and, and have enough machines going and, and all of that stuff. And I was at a, a firm called achieve.com. You know, we were a, a classic dot-com startup and we were, we were developing an application that would help K through 12 schools really build a community online for students and teachers and parents to, to be able to collaborate. And it was really like, I mean, in modern terms, it was really like a, a social network for primary education. You know, but we didn't really have the, the language for that yet. I mean, we were just, you know, we're just making all the stuff up as we, as we went along and, you know, had that experience where, you know, we went from zero to 2000 schools in a very, very short period of time. It was four or five months and, and, you know, scaled up to 400,000 plus customers or users in that same period of time. And it was really, you know, it was really eye-opening. I mean, there, there are very few endeavors in life where you can build a customer base that large that quickly. And, and it was all so new at the time. And it was just very, you could see there was, a, there was, there was going to be an obvious appeal around that approach. So what sort of problems are you facing, you know, doing this around the, the, the turn of the century? <laughs> Seems terrible to phrase it like that, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I think our, our biggest challenges were really around infrastructure. Yeah, this is all pre-cloud. So, you, you know, you would have to build some kind of, some kind of data center. Um, you'd, have to, you'd have to set up your own connectivity you know, you'd have to buy machines, you'd have to run the networks, you'd have to run the firewalls, you'd have to, you know, you, you had to, you had to do everything. Was, was there anything else to do with the scale? Or was it literally how many people are hitting the small number of servers you had available? No, it was, it was scale too. You know, we're, we're signing up customers, signing up customers, signing up customers, watching our performance degrade, <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to figure out like, well, how do you, how do you scale this thing? How do you, you know, how do you redesign this? You know, very, very quickly, we went from kind of monolithic design to distributed design to thinking about horizontal scaling. You know, you're reading like papers, like we were reading, you know, papers that had been written by some of the early Google guys and like some of those folks. But but none of this was like off the shelf stuff that you could just go out and grab. It was it was all do it yourself. It was all assemble yourself. So the budgets were really high. The timelines were really long, and and it took just a tremendous amount of of skill and and expertise to to even do something relatively simple. And it's so different today. And and the other thing, like like at the time, like like the other thing that that meant is that there's really a, a tremendous amount of gatekeeping around computing in, in the '90s because like most people couldn't afford a Unix workstation. Like you'd go to a university lab and you could get that, but, but it's not like you would run Unix at home. I mean, you'd, you'd have to have something else at home. So you just, you couldn't even necessarily get access to some of the, some of the core technologies that, that you really needed. And that's just what's so amazing about being in the field today. It, it's easy to get a Mac. It's easy to run Linux. You know, it's easy to go to Azure, AWS, and and run whatever you want. 
you know, even if you've only have five dollars to spend, you you can get off on on a journey. And um, one of the things that we've done with Resurface is we've we've really worked with you know a lot of engineers around the world, and we've really focused on younger engineers that aren't in tech hubs, kind of like how I was growing up, like kind of hungry for opportunities and and not having a lot of local opportunities for that. And it's it's really amazing. I mean, you know, if you if you have a laptop, a decent laptop, you know, you can you can connect from anywhere and and work from anywhere now. That's really the vision that I think we saw in the in the 90s that that really, you know, this this computing could be ubiquitous and and could really open, you know, open pockets of opportunity, you know, all around the world. Yeah, we'll get into uh, into the resurface stuff in a lot more detail, I think, coming up. Um, I'm just curious to, to sort of reflect on that as well, of how different it was in the 90s of actually trying to string stuff together. I mean, where did you, I mean, no Stack Overflow. Like, how do you develop without Stack Overflow? Like, you know, you're going, th- you're reading papers, but how do you know where to go to get the papers? There, you know, you really relied on your community. Just, just like music enthusiasts or film buffs, you know, I had friends who were into independent film and they were always like sharing like, oh, you should be looking at this director or you should be, or this is coming out or whatever. And it was kind of the same thing with, with software. You'd recommend books, you'd recommend, you know, lectures to look at and, and papers to read and, and really rely on, on those folks. And, and it was funny. And, and sometimes you would just get terribly, terribly, terribly stuck. And, and I remember having multiple times there, there was one time uh i was having problems with a with a microsoft product and i literally you know it was, it was their help compiler of all things and um and i i called and i was on i was on their technical support like line that you phone line that you would call in that was like the only way to do it like there was no you can just email and so i i call in technical support and i i sat on technical support for six hours on hold getting connected to one person and then the next person and then the next person and then the next person before I finally got connected with this engineer at Microsoft who had worked on the help compiler. And he was like, Oh yeah, if you're, if you're trying to do, you know, a a help file, that's more than a megabyte to compile in the end, you need this special build and I'll, and I'll send it to you. Like, give me your address and I'll, I'll send you a disc. And he did. And so, you know, you got a floppy disc in the mail from, from Microsoft. And it was like, oh my God, it was like the best day ever. Like now I could finish that project and submit my invoice and get paid. But it was, it was much more like being an investigative journalist or something like that. <laughs> and um, yeah, cause no, no stack overflow, you know, no, no Google. <laughs> it's a hell of a lot of commitment. Yeah. Gosh. With, with all these, um, I'm just conscious of where you started, which was obviously hacking away at you know, Commodore 64 and stuff. Were you applying any of this cybersecurity stuff at this point, or were you kind of strictly like a software developer? The security angle has changed so much because at the time, you know, you, you knew that there was the potential for being hacked or being probed or, or being attacked or whatever, but like, like, you know, especially when we started building, you know, these first couple big, big web properties that I participated in, we knew that it could happen. We knew that it would happen eventually, but it was, but it was almost like a, like a badge of honor 
it, it was like if you got if you got attacked or you got hacked, it, it was kind of like like wow, somebody's really paying attention and somebody must really like want what we've got and all of that. And it it was it was novel, it was dramatic, but it felt like you know you, you must be doing something really right for that to happen. So naturally you'd kind of you'd kind of kick the can down down the road a little bit if you could. You know, you would you would build something and then you'd and then you'd you'd try to make it successful and then you'd worry about security, you know, at, at some at some point, right? And that's what's really changed for, to, to where we are now. You know, where we are now, and, and we've run these experiments ourselves, um, if you take any kind of endpoint. And you you stand up a new you know microservice or whatever it is on on Azure or AWS or GCP or 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 on your own hardware or wherever you know as soon as that endpoint is connected to the internet, it's going to be probed within minutes. There's going to be people banging on the door, and that that level of attack is going to be sustained the entire time that thing is live. Um, those attackers will be coming in. Before you run your first ad, before you're showing up on Google, before you've booked your first customer, those folks will already be there. And then the other thing that's 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 a real uh, real mental reset for me <laughs> is the the number of customers that we talk to, where their attackers are now the majority of the traffic that they see. So it's not it's it's not just some dramatic novel you know rare event um it's it's really you know bread and butter you know day in day out and the 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 bad guys outweigh the good guys in a lot of these scenarios and it's it, it's really hard to to kind of sit with that idea because it, it changes so many of our assumptions about how these systems work and how to monitor them how to tell if they're if they're working properly, um, you know, it, it really puts a, a completely different spin on that. You know, the, the same way that if you think about like going down to a local bank, a bank robbery is a relatively rare event. It's very dramatic, right? But, you know, how would you, how would you operate your bank differently if half the people that showed up at to, you know, to use the bank on a daily basis were there armed and ready to, to rob the place? You know, you'd you'd have to conduct business very differently in in that kind of environment. So that's you know a lot of what I think we're we're grappling with now is um, you know these technologies are so so successful, but unfortunately, you know, the history of of all technology is you know runaway successes lead to unintended consequences and and negative outcomes. So I'm keen to to breeze over then your time at Dell and, and Intel then. So if if these sorts of attacks were a novelty back when you were back in your Quest software, like what were you doing then uh, at Dell? And when did your awareness or when did it start to become a bit of a priority? Cybersecurity becoming a, a more of an issue that you you had to deal with. Yeah, it's it's a great question. So I. So at, at, at Quest, um, so we, we started a, a company here in Boulder. We ultimately sold that business to Quest. And we were the Gartner Magic Quadrant leading end user monitoring solution as part of Quest. And so what we were doing was, was web monitoring. And 
our goal um, or our, our focus was really on quality. So our focus was really, you know, these applications are very complicated. They, they can break in all kinds of different ways. Um, you know, you, have, you can have customers that are seeing SQL exceptions instead of seeing, you know, real web pages. We also saw a lot of cases where we would have failures in business logic, where the, the systems would seem to be working properly, but we're actually doing the wrong thing. For example, um, selling airline tickets for $5 instead of $5,000. So the system is working and working really well, like processing those $5 orders really, really fast. Right? Yeah, surprisingly, uh, they're dealing with a real <laughs> spike at the moment. Not sure why. <laughs> right? Exactly. And then word gets out and you know everybody's coming in to, to take advantage of it. We just saw, you know, the, the the complexity go through the roof, you know, as we moved from kind of static websites and file sharing and things like that to to actual web applications and people wanting to conduct business over the web. You know, there's a huge need just to understand, you know, what what's really going on with these applications. Are they working? Are they working well in all of the conditions that that we're we're hoping that they work in? And then how we got from kind of there to here is, is really just that, you know, the world has moved from web-centric technology to, to API-centric technology. And then just these attackers by volume are so ever-present now that you, you know, really now, anytime you think about a quality problem, my API is slow or my API threw an exception. Well, there's a 50-50 chance. I mean, is it is it slow because that was a real customer and it had a real impact or was that slow because an attacker was trying to do a denial of service and they're trying to figure out like what slows down your site the most or your, you know, your digital property the most really like that, that knowledge that attackers may be, may be dominating your traffic. It really changes everything. How you think about error codes or error states or performance and, and quality. And then, of course, you know, about half of the security problems that exist today are actually quality problems. They're misconfigurations or they're misuse of the code, um, you know, failures of imagination in terms of how these systems might be used in, in a lot of cases. And so, yeah, that's just, it's just been a, um, just kind of follow the data points, right? The, the world, the world went from websites to APIs and then the, the the dark web stuff got a lot more profitable than it's ever been. And and that's really what's driving all this, right? I mean, the all these attackers, they're they're programmers too. They they take their jobs very seriously. They are learning and they are evolving and innovating very quickly. And certainly in some cases they're even very well funded and, and highly organized. So it's uh yeah it's a crazy Crazy landscape. <laughs> so as it, as it says on your website, detect and respond to API security threats in real time. Is this a competitive landscape? Or is this something that you are uh, sort of discovering, creating a market for? We're, we're certainly not the only API security company. <laughs> That's why I'm look, look, trying to get the angle on this. Like, where did you come at it from? And, and how, is, how does that competitive landscape work for you? It's really been incredible. I mean, really just even in the last 
two years. I mean, when we first started Resurface, um, a lot of the folks that we talked to, yeah, we would we would talk about API security, and they'd be like, "Well, I'm I'm not even sure we have APIs." <laughs> you'd be like, "Dude, I'm on your mobile app right now." Like, uh, that's always a little concerning. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, part of part of the challenge here is it, it's it's difficult to get a handle around kind of the the metaphor and kind of how much how much things have changed, like. The, the web, you know, the, the, the first internet was kind of easier to get your head around because the, the, the first internet, you know, the one that we built in the 90s and the early 2000s, that was built for people. That was built for file sharing. That's for cat pictures. That's for vacation uh, videos. You know, a lot of that was, was, was for humans, right? Um, it was humans using web browsers to access websites and, you know, logging into Facebook that way, you know, pre-mobile apps, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. And now we've moved to an internet that is really, you know, the hub of our global commerce and is super important from, from a business operational standpoint. And the dominant model is not humans using browsers to access websites. The, the dominant model is now pieces of software talking to other pieces of software across the internet. And those software components talk to each other through APIs. So the APIs are basically like the phone calls between those, those software agents. But it's a fundamental shift in how we think about computing because it's not human-centric. What we're doing instead is we're empowering all these software agents, whether those agents are mobile apps or AIs or whatever they are, but we're, we're empowering these, these software programs to act on our behalf, you know, make recommendations for us, do work for us, find things for us. And they are primarily interacting with other software agents, not humans on the other side. So it's, it's a it's a huge huge shift to to get to get your head around, and it's really happened you know almost almost overnight. Even a lot of the traditional web properties that that we used to work with, they see almost no web traffic, you know, compared to the the traffic they get through their mobile apps or through the the APIs that their partners and integrators use. Yeah, it's a really nice way of putting it, and it's so so true. Um, you mentioned you know that's obviously all about APIs then. So what, what was your, what led to your just focus on APIs? What, what made you choose that path to kind of um, lead the way with, with uh, Resurface Labs? Honestly, it's, it's because it's the, it's the biggest opportunity. Some of the, some of the data that we've seen lately, you know, Gartner estimates that 85% of web traffic that's business to business is now APIs versus versus traditional web traffic. We're also seeing all kinds of interest from government agencies and enterprises that you wouldn't typically think of as technology companies that want to be part of this API economy. You know, they want to they want to participate in this. Uh, you know, a lot of folks 
they're they're moving towards APIs because their suppliers want them to move towards APIs. They want to get you know they they want to improve their supply chains. Um, the the Biden administration in the U.S. has done a lot to kind of advance the the the, the kind of the standards of care around these, and there's going to be some great outcomes. So one of the things that's come out um, relatively recently is that healthcare data, um, personal healthcare data now is gonna be available through, through APIs. And it, it, it's even very explicit that by API, we don't mean that you go to a website and you download a PDF that a human has to read, that this has to be for machine to machine. And that's great, like that's amazing. I mean, that means that we'll be able to use that, that healthcare data in all kinds of different ways that, that really just weren't scalable or possible before. But, you know, every time I hear something like that, you know, as somebody that works in the industry, it's it's like, yay, that's really great. And, you know, oh, crap, like, that's, you know, <laughs> what what does that you know, what does that mean when, you know, when your your you know, data about all of your citizens leaks? I mean, it's only it's only a matter of time. Right. I mean, we've had we've had credit reporting breaches already that have effectively exposed data about, you know, five eighths of Americans. So, you know, but that's just, that's just, you know, income and demographic data. I mean, what happens when all of our healthcare data leaks too? We need to be paying a lot more attention to the, 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 the potential misuses of, of these technologies. I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing attacks this year that we've never seen before. The, the, the present doesn't even look like the past, let alone does the, does the present look like the future. Do you think the de facto then for API security is still either non or um, under supported security rather than natural, you know, protected APIs? I I know this is a a self serving comment to make <laughs> as a as an API security vendor, but it is it is absolutely shocking the 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 number of organizations that are that are providing public APIs that are really mission critical for their business where they have they have you know paying customers using those APIs and yet they have virtually no understanding of how those APIs are actually being used when they're breaking how often without going into sort of selling the product right now uh, <laughs> we can talk more about the product in a minute but are there any like um are there any quick tips for someone, if they want to go and if they want to test their API and see if it is secure, you know, maybe they've not thought about it. Yeah, you know, a, a great way to start is, um, you know, if you're not doing any kind of, of penetration testing or bug bounty program or, or anything like that, those kinds of programs are relatively easy to, to, to start up. And that's kind of the, the traditional way of looking at it. Is I'll I'll hire a firm that will pretend to be an attacker from from the outside, you know, but someone who's not actually out to do damage. And then what we're trying to commoditize is the idea of monitoring inside the firewall. So you hope that your firewall is keeping out all those bad actors, but but we know that they that they can't they can't do that in in every case. So what you really need is a, a very strong surveillance system inside the firewall 
that's helping you understand how your APIs are actually being used and where, where the problems are. So for example, if you have an attack um, that's, an, uh, that's an obvious attack signature and the system responds with customer PII or the system responds with sensitive details about the system itself and how it works, that's going to be super bad. So um, having, a, having a basic security system that, that helps identify and tag those kinds of problems is a, a hugely important moving forward. Are, are you still finding that's a big issue at the moment, that, that these are still some of the basic things uh, that people are getting wrong? Yes, over, over and over and over and over and over again. Everyone understands that there are there's there are risks around security, but the kind of the easy thing to do is hide behind your firewall. To be perfectly frank, there's there's also like a bit of nationalism nationalism that, that creeps in here. Sometimes you hear people couch this as like, well, we can we can look at the traffic coming from Russia and we can shut that off if we want to. And and that is a real threat. But you know, a lot of the attacks that we see are not you know, country of origin related. By the way, the Russians know that. So they they use compromised machines in the U.S. to attack machines in the U.S. so that those attacks don't look like they're coming from overseas. There's also been a huge rise in insider attacks. And again, those can be highly organized. So I won't share names about the vendors, but we've heard stories about how you know, some of these very large tech companies, these, these criminal groups will find college students with gambling problems, drug problems, like however they can get their hooks into these kids. But these kids like basically have clean records, right? Um, these kids graduate from school. They go to work at, in low-level IT positions at these large companies. And now you have an insider that is compromised that can help you attack that organization from the inside. And for every one of those people on the inside, you might have 20, 25 people on the outside helping them. So highly organized. And these people are incredibly hard to find. I mean, you're basically talking about running counterintelligence programs to, to, to find these people. So it's, again, these, these, these hackers, uh, I mean, they, th- th- there is a whole dark, industry around this and it is very lucrative that's why they're doing it and they 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 take their jobs extremely seriously and they're they're very well thought out you know back in the day you just port scan <laughs> like and nobody you know or, or be a script kitty and it didn't really you didn't even have to really know how to write a script like to, to stage that that kind of attack but that's really not not the kind of thing that we're that we're seeing now just as an example, you know, so as um, part of the pandemic, right, I mean, we haven't been going to in-person conferences, we've been going to virtual conferences. So there's these virtual conference platforms that have sprung up all over the place. Well, we kind of can't help ourselves. Like when we when we go to an event like that, I mean, we we poke at it. <laughs> we've We've successfully penetrated every technical conference that we've gone to. We've done things like scrape the attendee list. We had a, a very large conference. One of our uh, one of our engineers was gonna was gonna be demoing at the conference. 
he's a young guy. He's super excited. It was his first, his first professional conference and his first time ever demoing. And so he, uh, yeah, he sent, a, a, he sent a, a, an email or a message to everyone at the conference, like, hey, come, come check out our demo. And the conference organizer was like, wait, how did you do that? <laughs> we didn't give you permission to do that. You didn't pay us to do that. How'd you do that? It's like, well, uh, it's because your APIs are wide open. I connect as an authenticated user and it, all it's doing is checking the authentication. And then it's saying, hey, because you're an authenticated user, you can call whatever you want on the back end. So we did. What was the conference about? It wasn't like a cybersecurity conference at all, was it? This was a cybersecurity oh, conference. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <Brilliant. gosh. laughs> the, the The hardest thing about being in, in cybersecurity is that you're just, you're bringing up bad news and nobody likes to hear bad news, right? So um, we actually went back to these virtual conference platforms and said, hey, you've got a problem. Here's the script that we used to attack your platform. They don't even say thank you. <laughs> it's, it's like, they're, they're pissed. <laughs> they're like, why did you hack our platform? It's like... It, it was there. <laughs> it was there. Like, what did you expect? We're developers. I mean, you're at a cybersecurity event. Like, what do you think was going to happen? Yeah. And especially, you know, we've got more, uh, there are more attacks. They are becoming more sophisticated. And obviously, there's more and more devices connected to the internet as well, obviously. Is that something that you're expecting to, to, to create further security flaws, potentially? Further um, further impact on, uh, on, on, on human life, let's say. How do you expect that to play out as we start getting more of these devices connected? I think you can take what we've seen in the past, what we've seen in the physical world, um, and I think you can I think you can ex- you can use those metaphors to extend. You know, a lot of the things that we do are are really looking at at analogs in the physical world, and then saying, you know, in in the virtual world, you know, those those same kinds of things will will happen. It's just a matter of time. Let's let's take connected cars as an example. So if you have a car that's that's a connected car, that means that it's only a matter of time before somebody figures out how to control that car remotely. Um, and in fact, we've talked to a couple friends of our firm who are professional hackers who have done exactly that. They've they've been hired by law enforcement and have successfully compromised law enforcement vehicles when those vehicles are moving. And so that can be even applying emergency braking systems, right? So now you think about, you know, you're, you're watching a heist movie and you, you've got a getaway driver that's chasing the police and you've got a hacker and, you know, that they're working with who is changing the traffic lights to green and shutting down the cop cars that are trying to follow them. And then, and then look at that from the other side. So, so when you have connected cars, won't law enforcement actually ask for the ability to remotely disable a, a, a vehicle in motion? So now the cops that are chasing that getaway vehicle, can they, can they just shut down that vehicle instead of having to, to chase it? I mean, this sounds great to me. I feel like we're going to be having more Mustangs and things back in, uh, back in movies because <laughs> you're going to need an analog car to get away. <laughs> right, that's right. <laughs> but although it's not necessarily in this specific scenario, the, the word ethics pops into my head a little bit when we think about 
controlling things, you know, for air quote good or bad. Like, where where do you stand on that in terms of knowing, like, who, whose ethics wins in a, in a decision? There is it the is it the hackers that choose to be the ones to change the traffic lights, or is it law enforcement? agencies or, or, or whatever the ones deciding that we want to close that down like i don't know it just feels like it could get a bit messy there do you have any thoughts on ethics basically yes it's it's wide open and and the other and the other big vector there is there there's a, a certainly a much larger appetite for government to start to weigh in on these issues as well and and what are the proper standards of care there you know i think something like gdpr was inevitable to try to establish some standards of care and and some measures of of protection um especially around the the third party data sharing this is very very dear to our hearts because for all of the all of the API security companies that are out there today, Resurface is the only one that we know of where you actually own all of your data. We're not a third-party, multi-tenanted SaaS platform where you know, we don't do security by you send all of your data to Resurface and we analyze it. We're collecting and analyzing that data locally. All that data remains under first-party control. We think that at least some of our competitors will ultimately be ruled illegal in Europe, if not other places. Um, in fact, I read this really shocking um, article from Gartner yesterday. They estimate, based on different sectors, they estimate up to 30% of vendors may fail due to not being able to, to adapt to the new privacy regulations that are coming out in the next four to six years. Um, the, the handwriting is very much on the wall uh, about this. And I think we've seen there's, there's an oversharing of data problem, right? There's a lot of vendors that are just happy to take your, happy to take your data, happy to take your data for free. So you're, you're paying with your data, you're paying with your privacy. And I think, you know, to, to bootstrap to where we've, where we've gotten to, I mean, obviously that's, that's important. But, but the thing to keep in mind is that you don't know who's going to own that vendor in the future. So you give all your data to this vendor, then that vendor gets purchased by a bigger company. Well, guess what? Now that data set is in the hands of that larger company and we've, we've seen that pattern. So you know, digital privacy, I think is, is an aspect to digital security and cybersecurity that really cannot be overlooked because all these APIs and all these digital systems depend on other APIs and digital systems. These supply chains are very long. And when you think about a very long supply chain where every link in the chain is vulnerable to insider attack or corporate takeover by, by some larger firm, that's, that's going to be problematic. And we see you know, we see real world examples of that coming up. I mean, this isn't this isn't just academic stuff that we're talking about here. I mean, this is something that that makes the news almost every day. So talking a little bit more about the product itself then. So what is particularly what's the most unique thing about it and how it works? Because it looks like there's a number of different ways that I can actually get data into resurface. 
Yeah, the thing that we're really solving for is to manage the risk around your APIs. And that's really what we're solving for. We want to point you at, at areas of weakness and areas of risk in your, in your API operations so that you, you know what to focus on in terms of making those API operations more robust. And that's just the, the common theme that we come across over and over and over again is, you know, you have technical staff that, that want to do things better. You have a security org that wants to do things better, but they just, they can't take an empirical approach. It's not easy to apply KPIs. It's not easy to measure how well you're doing. And, and that makes it hard to tell if you're, if you're moving in the right direction, um, if you're making things better or you're, or you're making things worse. And of course, we're in this environment where, where APIs are, like as a business operator, these APIs are kind of springing up all around you and you, and you, can't, you can't ignore them. And from a competitive perspective, again, we see a lot of folks gravitate towards, we'll, we'll buy a better firewall. Um, we'll buy a firewall that uses AI and that firewall will block attackers on the network faster and we'll just hold, we'll just hold everyone at bay um, that way. And it's, it's just not realistic. Like those attackers are going to get through. And the other thing is that when you think about managing those firewalls, you're, you're managing how many false positives they generate. And there tends to be a low appetite for risk around that. You know, we don't want to block a legitimate user thinking that they're an attacker. In fact, for a lot of organizations, that's a worse outcome than having an attack because you'll always lose revenue if you're blocking a real user, right? So that's, that's really what, what we're solving for with, with Resurface. You, you know you have these APIs, but when you don't really understand what they're doing and how they're being used, you are exposing yourself to multiple, multiple areas of risk. And that that's ultimately uh, damaging for your for your brand. So by plugging resurfacing, then is it is it something that lights up straight away with what's going on with with everything, or is there a certain amount of tuning that you've got to do to start getting the data you want to see? So what's great about this is organizations like NIST and OWASP, um, which we follow very carefully, um, they've they've really set some great objective standards about what you should be protected against. And so we, we start with those definitions. We have to guide a lot on this. The, the product has to guide a lot, on, a lot on this because just gathering all this data is not enough. I mean, you, you, you need to know what you should be paying attention to and, and what, the, what the meaningful signals are. So OWASP, for example, they have a top 10 list of these are the things that you should be doing for API security. Um, one of those is continuous monitoring. So we're, we're solving for that one. And that tends to be the, the least often included in the, the security profiles that people are, are, are security programs that, that people are running today. And then in Resurface, we have uh, built-in rules that look for uh, a lot of those OWASP top 10 kinds of, kinds of issues. And that's as a starting point, just to get the ball rolling. Like that's the basic stuff that everyone should be doing and then we can easily go beyond that. We can, we can look at any subset of the traffic, any segment of the traffic that you want to look at 
and establish uh, monitoring rules around. So we're, we're very, very flexible. And we can do that without any kind of custom coding or custom development. Um, it's, it's very easy to, to describe what you want to find and let, let resurface tell you if that, that kind of issue recurs in the future. Is it covering any level of um, performance, you know, the load that's coming through the system as well? Yes, performance is, is definitely um, an aspect of quality that, that is important to, to measure. And so we, we do that as, as part of this. You know, again, our, our outcome isn't just to, just to drive performance itself, but, but it's to say, is the performance expected? Did, did, it, did it meet the business need? Or is it a case where the, the, the user is trying to create performance problems for the for the org, you know, because that's that's the thing. Like uh, like as an engineer, you know, if you think about like so, there's a 50-50 shot. Like so, anytime you see a performance slowdown, well, is that did we do something wrong? And there's a case where where it's running slow, or is that a DOS attack that's intentionally trying to create performance problems? If you can't get to that context pretty quickly about what kind of user was it, what was the activity? that led to that performance problem, you, you can easily have you know, completely the wrong outcome from the business side. You don't wanna optimize performance for your DOS attackers. Like that just makes the problem worse, right? So you, you, you have to have some notion of the, the context of this and that's very difficult to gain. And that's the sort of thing that you're able to expose with resurface then? That is, that's exactly what we're doing, yeah. Another way to think about that is, is a lot of developers don't really see what the attackers are doing. You know, the developers, you're, you're working on your laptop, you're working in your QA environments, things are very sanitized. And as a developer, you think, well, you know, this, it all works on my machine and then the firewall protects us from everything. And then the security team, they're managing the firewall. They're, they have that real sense of, well, there's false positives, there's false negatives, all that stuff. But, you know, but the stuff that gets through, well, the application team will take care of that. And really, you know, both sides of the organization think that maybe the other side has it solved or, you know, or the other, you know, the other half of the org is going to take care of it. And, and it really needs to be both of those groups working together. So how do we get started with resurface if we want to give it a go? We are the easy button. <laughs> for <laughs> for uh for monitoring we are kubernetes and docker native we are we're cloud native from that perspective so um, a lot of the folks that we're working with you know they already have microservices that they're running on azure aws gcp and so we have a uh, a one-click helm install and we can install resurface next to those next to those apis and gather that data and, and then starts continuously scanning that traffic in those environments where your apps are, are already running. So for anybody who's, who's already on a native Kubernetes stack, this is super easy and, and native to deploy. Um, you, don't need a, you don't need a DBA. Um, you don't need a big data architect. Uh, you don't have to run Hadoop or Kafka or some of these enormous data architectures to, to actually solve the problem. That's really what we've put a lot of our focus into 
is is making this easy so easy to get started and what do we need a license or something yeah we have a download and go model and um so we we also make it easy from from that perspective very straightforward predictable pricing model yeah um our goal is really you know with our previous company you know we we really did did web monitoring for very very large properties um you know some of the largest websites in the world and our goal with resurface is really to make that technology available to everyone so regardless of your your budget you know even if you're a startup like us and you're doing your first couple APIs you know this is this is affordable not just affordable but much cheaper than to hire the API analyst that you're going to have a hard time hiring again that's really the problem that we're we're working backwards from is like e- even if you know what you should be doing you, you still have a lack of of people to kind of help you help you put that in place so we we want to help provide some of that intelligence make the analysts that you have um better and and make make the orgs better all right well is there any final thoughts you want to add for us rob yeah just thanks thanks for having me on the on the program and you know it's it's such a great time to be in tech it's such a great time to be in security it's a it's a great time to to be in the field and um you know for anybody that's uh that's listening to this that wants to get into this field or is, or is curious about how to get started always love to have those conversations as much as you know talk about what uh, what resurface the company can do of course but as a final thing you were talking about um resurface earlier on and how how to get kids involved did you say there was a particular initiative you were doing yeah one of the things that we've done is we have a we have a number of open source components that that we use um in fact all of our data collection is is done through through open source components and that that's a great way to get started and so actually a way that we've recruited engineers to our team is to go out and say hey we'll we'll do uh paid open source contributions and it's a great way for for, for folks to to come in and get involved you you basically get paid to build your resume and you get paid to have something in your portfolio that that you can show you know what what you can do and that's just been an amazing way to bring in talent that's really engaged and and also do that in a way that that's really meaningful to to give back you know a lot of folks that are starting out you know just like me <laughs> starting out there's a lot of stress and anxiety around you know how do i get that first opportunity you know how do i get that 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 first junior level position or whatever that gets your that gets your foot in the door you know paid open source or even unpaid open source is is really a great way you know to to build your portfolio and and show what you can do and that's that's been super fun for us to run that that kind of program so where can people go to find out about that oh you can contact me directly i mean in in our case <laughs> um yeah we're we're always um you know we we put a we put a note out on twitter every every now and again about it but we're yeah we're always looking for for open source developers to to join the team and then you know i'd say probably half of those folks in our case end up graduating to to work on other projects in in the company great it's been a pleasure talking to you and it, it, especially sort of reminiscing about the late 1900s as well <laughs> um, late 1900s <laughs> absolutely
All right. Well, uh, thank you for uh, thank you for joining us, Rob. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thanks again. Appreciate the the opportunity to come on. Rob really seems to know his stuff, and it was a real pleasure talking to him. So that really took me back that episode. So. Next week, we welcome Daniela Paredes, who co-founded the Minority Report-style design tool for virtual reality, Gravity Sketch. Now, I've used this app. It's a really fun app. It's the app I use to show off to uh, to my friends whenever I'm showing off my VR headset. It's a really cool design tool. And we got the opportunity to actually speak with the founders and dig into a little bit more about how it all came about and the kind of future of the product. Now, this episode is quite weird because I was spending a week, um, a business week inside of VR as much as I could. So I actually conducted this podcast in VR. That's probably may, maybe why you uh, would hear my face banging on the microphone. But anyway, I won't ruin the surprises on that one. So make sure if you're interested in VR product design and startups, make sure you tune into that one. So as usual, leave us a review on Apple and Podchaser. We really like those reviews. They go a long way. A five-star review, no less, uh, please. Thank you very much. Stay in contact with us over at Twitter, twitter.com slash thattechshow underscore, I believe. We've reignited our Instagram as well. So if you prefer Instagram, if that's your way of communication, then do check us out on, I think it's again, thattechshow underscore. Or if old school, I mean, we're talking about the internet here, but if you're old school, do go on our website where we have a contact form or you can email us at hello at that tech dot show. So here we go. We actually learned that a shekel is actually an Israeli and Middle Eastern currency worth about 24p. And I don't think buy me a coffee supports that amount. I think it's at least four shekels. I could be wrong. I'm not too sure. But check us a few shekels over at buymeacoffee.com slash that tech show. And you can do wonders to support the show because, of course, we do it out of love. So again, I'm sure you've had enough of me speaking right now. So I'll leave you to your days. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll see you next week.